This morning we are starting a series called The Signs of Generosity. The Signs of Generosity. We've just come off of a worship series for six weeks looking at the idea of in order for us to go in a deeper relationship with God, that starts here. It starts here with this idea of worship. And if you missed any of those series and if you are so inclined to check that out um, on the website, I don't know if you guys know that uh, Art Gresham puts the web, the sermons up uh, every single week and does a great job with that. And so if you want to be able to follow along, we'd encourage you to, to check those out. But this morning, we're starting again, the series called The Signs of Generosity. And, and kind of the subtitle to that is Calculating the Cost of Trusting God with Our Money. Calculating the cost of trusting God with our money. And so, in order to kind of introduce this series, I want to share a little story about when I was six years old, I was a first grader, and I went uh, to a small Catholic school. There were just 30 of us, 33 of us in the class, and so... Uh, and when we were six years old in first grade, that was from kindergarten through eighth grade. So first grade was when we were a small class, but we hadn't annoyed each other too much yet. So it was a good class. Um, and one of the activities we would do, one of the games we would play, uh, is this game called Around the World. Uh, is anyone familiar what Around the World is like? Okay, great. So Around the World, for those of you who may not be familiar, this is a game in which, uh, for us, we would use math flashcards. The teacher would have math flashcards at the very front. And... There are people sitting down and there's one player who stands behind the person in front. And so the person sitting down, the person standing up, it's like they're whoever's fastest. And so they would show a flashcard and be like four. And whoever gets the right answer moves on. If so that's the person that's standing up, then they just go to the next person. If it's the person sitting down, then the person standing up grabs their seat and then they're just moving on. So when I was six years old, I was very competitive because I wasn't, I hadn't become as accustomed to losing competitions as I have now, so I was much more competitive back then. And so I got to, uh, I, and I did well with math um, when it was easy, and when there was, num- when there was numbers and no letters, that's when I was really good at math. And so we ended up having this time where it would be this game where they, my friends called me, and by far the coolest thing they've ever had was the human calculator. Um, super nerdy, but I loved it. So we would play, and it's because we would play this game, and they would put the flashcards up, and I, would, I just ended up doing really well. I was able to read it quickly and respond quickly, and there were different, there were like other students in class that were, was really, that we were really good, so we would like go against each other, and you know, like if I'm standing behind this person, or they're standing behind me, like there's like this low like rumble. Uh, I imagine it was as competitive as the World Cup is, but it's, um, there was a lot of passion though. So we ended up, you know, I would do pretty well at that, but the reason I bring that up is because there's one, there's a couple very important things with that flashcard. One, you need to know the numbers are, right? But what's even more important than the numbers is you need to know what sign was there in order to know what function you needed to do. Because six divided by three is two, six minus three is three, six plus three is nine, and six times three is 18. I didn't even write that down, I just remembered that. Um, But it's one of those, please, please. Cuban calculator. Um, But it's one of those where knowing the sign was vitally important to getting the right answer. Right? Because again, any of those wrong understanding the signs, you get it wrong. So what we're doing as we're talking about the signs of generosity and calculating the cost of trusting God with our money, as we're going through that over the next five weeks, we're going to look at each of the mathematical signs that you see on uh, the screen there. And each one is going to have a principle about giving and generosity or a sign that we are living a generous life with our money. And so the first one, The one that we're going to start off with this morning is the equal sign, which tells us the point today is that you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. 
So will you join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for this? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that there is no equal to you. We thank you that all of you is more than enough for all of us and all that we need, Lord. I pray that um, you would open up our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to what you have for us this morning. I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak uh, in an incredible way, in a powerful way, uh, in a personal way to each and every one of us, Lord. And we're grateful that you are with us, that you love us, and that you are generous first. So may we be generous and kind. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we talk about, again, this idea that you cannot serve both money and God, they are not equals. And so I remember the very first time having a lot of money felt really good in my life. Uh, when I was, was about nine years old, by a lot of money, what I meant was the $83 I saved up because I really, really, I loved Legos and I specifically really wanted uh, an Ice Planet base, which we have a picture of, because this was what I wanted so badly. I know, it's blue and orange. Um, <laughs> I uh, saved up for this. I remember going to Toys R Us when that was a thing, and I remember buying those, and uh, I was so excited that I had saved up for it. And it was this idea of like I had money, and it felt good to have money, because right, you know, before that I would just buy you know anything or whatever. Right now we're trying to teach Shaylin to save up for things, but instead it's like every time she has five dollars, she just thinks, oh, I want a Beanie Boo, or I want this, and it's like a Hatchimal, and like. Save up, get something worth it. Um, but it's this idea of being able to save up that money. That mon having a lot of money felt good. And at six years old, or sorry, nine years old, eighty-three dollars is a lot of money that I saved up. But you know, now for me, it's not like I want to have a lot of money um, just for the sake of having money, right? Like for me, sometimes there's a degree. If I'm just being honest, I'm not obsessed with money. I'm not. But if I'm honest. There's times in which having money can help feel like there's comfort and security. There's times in which you can feel like, oh, it's nice to have, you know, quote, money in the bank, or it's nice to have, quote, money put away for a rainy day. It's nice to feel like there's some security, some comfort, some peace in that. And so the problem with that happens is only when we recognize that if you're like me, maybe you're someone who says, you know, I'm not obsessed with making money either. I'm not. And, and I, I, I work hard, and, and the work that I do it earns money, and that's good, and I, and I live off that, that's great. Because is money a bad thing in and of itself? No. But 1 Timothy 6 talks about that the love of money can be the root of all evil. Not money, the love of money. Money can do great things. It can build hospitals. It can sponsor children. It can change lives. But when money becomes that which we pursue first and foremost, then it becomes an idol, and then that's when it's wrong and when it can lead to the a root of all kinds of evil. But so maybe you're, you're here and you're, you say, you know, I'm, I'm not obsessed with making money, but again, maybe if we're honest, we recognize that it does feel nice, it feels good to have a little bit more money put aside for a rainy day or money in the bank. And the problem happens when you and I, when we trust more in our bank statements than banking on the statement that God is faithful. It's when we trust more in that number in the corner of our, of our um, checkbook or online. It's when we trust in the number of zeros that we have rather than recognize that without God, we wouldn't have anything. And so this idea, again, you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. And the love and worship and pursuit of money in our culture, maybe again, maybe it's not specifically for you, this is your biggest struggle. For some it is. 
And this might be a difficult journey a little bit through this morning and throughout the series, but not for everyone. But I think it would be fair for us to say that even if the love and the worship and the pursuit of money in our lives may not become superseding everything, but the love and the worship and the pursuit of money has become a driving force in our culture. It has become a new type of worship. So we look at this, that Frederick Nietzsche says this. He says, what once was done, quote, for the love of God is now done for the love of money, i.e. for the love of that which at present affords us the highest feeling of power and a good conscience. That in the past, we would receive power through the Holy Spirit's power. In the past, people would receive a good conscience because they're living according to the Bible and they know that they're living correctly or they're living and following the way of Jesus. But now money can very easily take the place of God in many people's lives. That maybe we, we say we feel powerful because I have money to be able to pay for things that, I, that maybe other people don't. Or maybe we feel like we have a good conscience because we're able to put away stuff. And so a good conscience might be another way of saying we have security or comfort, recognize that we could face trials because there's money in the bank or money for a rainy day. But for some people, from some of us, this idea of the love, what we do for the love of God, that pursuit, that love, and that worship has been replaced by the God of money, pursuit and love of worship of that. And so for us, growing up in a culture, growing up in a country that talks about the American dream and what that means, how do we, how do you, how do I, how do we honor God with our money? How do we make sure that we don't find our security in money over God in the midst of an American dream culture? Because again, you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. And in Jesus' very first sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus touches on this tension. He touches on the tension in Matthew chapter 6, if you want to turn there in, in verse 19. He touches on this tension of the idea of people that want to serve, have their treasures on earth and their treasures on heaven, or in heaven. Or they want to have money and pursue money and they want to pursue God. And he kind of dives in and shows us some truths about that. And one of the truths that we're going to look at together is that... This, there's a few points we have of how we serve money without even knowing it. How we serve money without even knowing. We say we don't serve money. We don't love money as much. We love God. How do we do it without even knowing that we're doing it sometimes? Just by being a byproduct of our culture and buying into what the culture tells us is important. So as you're turning to Matthew 6, 19 and 24, it's on page 1508 in the church Bible. If you have your Bible app or another Bible, that's fantastic. But as you're turning there, let's start asking about this idea of what is the American dream? What is that thing that we build up as a culture, as the American dream, as that which is the goal for which we should pursue? And what it is, isn't it not someone who comes from rags, comes from nothing? Is it not someone who comes from nothing and out by the perseverance of the spirit and the sweat of their breath? they build themselves up into from the rags of having nothing to the riches to be able to live a good life to be able to put aside money and to be able to buy a four-bedroom house in Southern California in order to have the white picket fence and the 2.3 kids and and 2.3 kids is not real calculator math, so don't worry about that. But to be able to have this desire to just, I came from nothing because of my hard work, because of what I've done, because of my perseverance. Notice the tense, the, the, the continuation of the theme of my stuff. 
Forgetting the fact that without God, we wouldn't have the gifts in which to make money with anyways. But we say, because of what I've done, I've made a name for myself, and now I'm living the American dream to put money away and to live easy. Is that not the American dream? Is that not what we propose or we look up as a culture, say, look at these people who have done this, and we elevate them and put them on a pedestal? And so we look at this idea of how maybe some of us serve money without even really knowing it because ingrained in our psyche and in our lives is this idea that we need to come from rags to riches, that we, we don't think we have enough. And so then when we get enough, enough is never truly enough. And so then we just keep going and wanting more and more and more. And even this happens at a, at a young age, right? So maybe we talk about... Um, you know, I remember going when Shaylin was four years old, we, uh, there was like a school or there's a night at her preschool that was, you know, how to pick the right kindergarten. And there are all these different kindergartens here. And I'm like, she's four. I shouldn't be stressed about this, but I'm like, okay, all right, well, if we don't get her into the right kindergarten, then she's probably, you know, not really going to get a great education. If she doesn't get a great education, then she's not going to really get the good grades. And if she gets the, doesn't get enough good grades, then she probably won't make it to the right middle school and then maybe not the right high school. And then maybe she doesn't make it to the right high school. Maybe she won't get enough into the right college and won't get the right degree and won't get uh, financial aid to that. And if she doesn't go to the right college with the right degree, then how is she going to make enough money in order to live and to survive? Now, did I have all those thoughts when I was four? Yeah, no, I didn't. But, but that's the tension that we feel, that the pressure to get good grades can often come from if it's not a healthy mindset of, I want to honor God with whatever I do. I want to do all things as if for the Lord and not man. But if the idea is not a healthy, I want to honor God in my schoolwork, or I want to honor God at my work, if it's not a healthy idea, it could be an unhealthy idea of, I need to get good grades because I need to go to the right school so that I can get the right degree so that I can make money. So even behind the scenes, there are ways in which maybe we serve money or, or maybe buy into the system of serving money without even fully being aware of it. But we look at this idea of the American dream, and, and I want to take a quotation from someone who would have lived this out, that in 1835, uh, Andrew Carnegie was born. And if you don't know who Andrew Carnegie is, he, he owned the predecessor of U.S. Steel and became the third wealthiest man alive. They adjusted his net worth from in the 1800s to 2014. And his net worth in 2014 dollars was $372 billion. So he, this is a man who, who achieved great wealth. But what does he say about living the American dream, about getting more money, about this disease we have of more? and more, and when enough never seems like it's truly enough. He says this, when he was 33 years old in 1868, the amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idols more debasing than the worship of money. This is from someone who had everything and had more than everything. This is from someone who we would look at and say, they've achieved the American dream. They achieved that amount of money where by the sweat of the brow and the perseverance of his spirit, he was able to build himself up from nothing into something. But even he looks and says, this is, this is just, it never stops. The amassing of wealth is this horrible species of idolatry. This amassing of wealth, and we recognize that even when we have enough, that it's never truly enough. And that desire for more, that desire for bigger, that desire for better is the desire that'll kill us. And so even he, at 33 years old, recognizes. Doesn't mean he changed his ways. 
but he had that acknowledgement at that young age. So what are two of the ways in which we serve money without necessarily knowing it? The first one is that we pursue money to provide for our future security. We pursue money to provide for our future security. We just kind of alluded to this fact when we talked about the idea of putting away for a rainy day or putting away so we could buy a home and uh, all those things. But let's read together Matthew 6, 19 through 21 in light of this idea of putting money away for future security. Verse 19, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So when I was, uh, I was probably about nine, ten years old. So um, we ended up going to, my mom and I, we drove to the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk up in the Bay Area. And it's just, it's a fun place with like rides and candy and all that stuff. Um, and I bought one of these uh, like lollipops. The, the stick is about this big, and then the lollipop is about this big, and it's like swirled, and it's just straight up, and it's like multicolored. Can you guys picture what I'm talking about here? It's delicious, and it goes on forever. Um, and so I bought that while I was at the boardwalk. It's about a 45 minute to an hour drive home. And so I'm, I'm enjoying the lollipop. I go home, put it on uh, the table right by the front door, go to use the restroom. My mom lets the dog in. I'm only gone for a couple moments, and guess what happens? Yeah, he ate it. <laughs> and then we put him down. No, I'm just kidding, we didn't do that. But he, he ate that, right? So he, he took it and I had put it in a place that wasn't safe, right? I put it in a place that was very easy for a dog to just you know, pop up, get it, and grab it. And so it's one of those where if I truly treasured it, then I probably should have put it in a place where it could not be stolen. And it's not that my dog was a moth or a vermin, but in that moment, you might have confused me otherwise. And so he, it was one of those ideas that I put it somewhere, that which I prized, in a place that could have been taken. But think about our prized possession, that which means the most to us. Do we just, do we put it like outside on the front lawn like it's a yard sale reject that we just put free on the front of it? No, no, no. We put it somewhere where it's safe. We put it somewhere where no one could get to it. We put it somewhere where it has, we show its value because of how secure it is. And the problem that happens that Jesus is hitting on here is this idea that when we put our treasures, our prized possessions, our things that mean the most to us within earth, whether it's something that we can tangibly, tactilely hold on to, like money or possessions or a house or something that we can hold on to and feel and touch and hold within our hands, that if that's the only way that we pursue our treasure, if that's all of our treasure is through that, then it runs the risk of being able to be taken. It runs the risk of being destroyed. It runs the risk of being eaten. It runs the risk of all it takes is one bad turn in the market. All it takes is the economic downturn of 2008. All it takes is a few bad financial decisions. All it takes is living in too much debt and living beyond our means, which we'll talk about in a future sermon. All it takes is for a few bad financial choices, then all of a sudden, if our security, if our future security is something in money that we could tactically hold on to and tangibly touch, then it's something that is apt and able to be taken away from us. And it doesn't matter how, how much we trust in our bank statements because then we're not banking on the statement that God is faithful and God provides because we're trying to hold on too much to just pursuing 
our treasures here on earth. And so if our treasures on earth, our joy can be lost and our security will be lacking. The other way in which uh, we can serve money without knowing it comes from verses 22 and 23, which say, or which the point is we can be blinded by our love of money. We can be blinded by our love of money. Verse 22 says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I have a, 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 an eye condition um, that's called keratoconus. Basically means that most people's cornea, their eyes are rounded. My cornea is conical. Um, for both eyes, but my left eye is, uh, it's 2040 um, without correction. My right eye is 2200. So that's bad. Um, and so I can show you my glasses. I'll show you later. One glass looks normal. And the other one is very, it's very curved. And so it's one of those things where it progressively gets worse. And, and then um, a few, uh, it, it starts to plateau a little bit. But from when I was 17, when I found out about it, it would just get worse and worse. And at the time, you were supposed to put this um, like hard contact lenses in there, which were just the bane of my existence. And so I really had a hard time with it. But it meant that my eyes were never truly good. They were never truly healthy. They were never truly able to see. And the reason I started wearing glasses was because four or five years ago, I was at a college retreat with some student, uh, with some of our college ministry leaders. And the, one of the leaders was just doing impressions of everybody. So she, they would walk in and say something like, oh, you're so-and-so. And, -so. and um, they did that. And then all she did, she just walked into a room and squinted and was like, JP. I'm like, oh gosh, this is a bad, this is a bad sign. Cause I, would, I always would squint like that. And I'm like, it is time. So this whole idea of this this idea of our, our eyes being so important, right? Well, this idea of this uh, verse 22, it talks about in my version here in the NIV, it says your eyes are healthy. Some of you might have if your eyes are good. Um, the, the terminology there could be good, it could be healthy, it could mean clear. Um, it could have a, a tendency towards the idea of generosity. But one of the better translations is that if your eye is single, if your eye is single, if your eye is singularly focused, if your eye is going here and not wandering from side to side, so it's saying if your eye is single, if it's healthy, if it's clear, if it's good, if your eye is single, then you recognize that you can't trust both in money and treasures here on earth and trust and hope and pursue God as our security, that it can't be a both and, it has to be an either or. And so... We look at this idea of, you know, if you're texting with someone while you're having, if I have a date with Steph and, and we're talking across the table, and if I'm texting the whole time, not giving her my eye contacts, not giving her my attention, and I'm looking down and not looking at her, and if she's on the phone too, this is not going to work out. I'm not showing my wife love, and it's not going to work out, unless if we're both texting each other, which is weird, but it happens. Um, but it's this idea of, of, I need to give her my full eye, give her my full attention. Same thing happens when I'm driving. I had a, a new setting that I put on my phone, uh, my iPhone, where you can do not disturb while you're driving. And that way, there's no distraction, so that while I'm driving, I'm not being distracted by whatever's popping up um, on the phone so that I can have a singular focus. So what he's saying here is, again, if we need to have a singular focus, we don't want to turn to the left or to the right. We want to have a singular focus so that it's not, oh, I'm trying to pursue money, and also I love God too, but it's loving God and recognizing that 
We make money. Money is okay. Money can be a good thing. It can change lives and it can build hospitals and it can sponsor children and it can bless people. So money in and of itself, again, is not bad. It's when we pursue and love and worship money with the same passion in which we should be pursuing, worshiping, and loving God. That is when we recognize that money and God cannot be equals. We cannot serve both. And so if our eyes are unhealthy, as verse 23 talks about, if, we're, if you're like me and you have to squint in order to see because your vision is kind of blurred, or if you have this, this double vision of not really paying attention to anything that's going on, or if we multitask, which is just a fancy word of saying not paying attention to anything, and if it's this idea of being able to just not have a singular focus, then we start to live for this world and we start to live for the next. Or we start to live for this world and we fail to see the benefit of living for the next. That we trust in this world for security, but then we get blinded when we get blindsided when that security falls apart. But we contend to, with unhealthy eyes, we can recognize that our hearts are blinded by the love of money. Timothy Keller, he says that greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi, the way of operating, includes blindness to our own heart. That if we were able to, if we raise our, if we all close our eyes and we raise our hands, how many of you struggle with greed? we would probably have fewer people raise their hands than if we were to ask how many of you struggle with wrath or pride or lust or gossip or whatever it may be because we tend to not see greed in ourselves. And one of the reasons we tend to not see greed in ourselves is because we look and we say, well, you know, I don't have $372 billion like Andrew Carnegie. So we say like, well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not the super wealthy. I'm not like the wealthiest of the wealthy. So that means I'm not really wealthy. It just means that, you know, like there's, you know, there's, there's room to grow. But here's, here's the, what Timothy Keller, he, he says it this way and on that point. He says that you don't compare yourself to the rest of the world. We don't compare our wealth to someone who's across the world without, who's living off of one or two dollars a day. We don't compare ourselves to the rest of the world. We compare ourselves, you compare yourself to those in your bracket. Because the human heart always wants to justify itself, and this is one of the easiest ways. He continues, as a result, most Americans think of themselves as middle class, and only 2% call themselves upper class. The further breakdown is that 25% will say lower or lower middle class, and then 72% will say middle or upper middle. But to continue on with the quotation, only 2% call themselves upper class. But the rest of the world is not fooled. When people visit here from other parts of the globe, they are staggered to see the level of materialistic comfort that the majority of Americans have come to view as a necessity. That we view having more TVs than people as a sign of wealth. Not the fact that we spend more on our Starbucks coffee than a large portion of the world gets for their entire day, let alone what we spend for our lunch and dinner and when we get our afternoon coffee as well. Is that a guilt trip? No. But is it an eye-opener to recognize the wealth that we truly have? Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, yes. And so we set up this problem that maybe we're serving money without really knowing it, both by pursuing money for future security while also being blinded by the love of money and how that drives so much uh, in our lives. But here's the crux. Here's what we need to land on. Because we can just say, oh yeah, you know, money can be good, but if you love money too much more than God, it's bad. We could talk about that, but let's dive into, with a few moments that we have remaining, why money and God are not equals. Why money and God are not 
equals. That's the whole point of using the equal sign is that money and God are not equals. Verse 24 of Matthew 6, as you're taking that note, just listen to what Jesus says here. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God, and some of your versions might say, and mammon, which was a, a word that was used by the Greeks for a, the idea of a money god. So the, the, the god of truth or the god of money. That's kind of the word mammon, that idea there. But he's saying, we cannot serve both. Now, there's some things that are opposites that, that can be good, right? Have you ever had, uh, you think about something that's really good, that's sweet and salty? Like, that's delicious. So yeah, something that can be as simple as kettle corn, or you think about this idea of like, I don't know if you ever had uh, peanut, chocolate-covered peanut butter pretzels. Yeah, we can just end service now. Um, <laughs> They're delicious. Thank you for amening that. I don't know what to do with that. Um, but then this idea of like that, that those are, that's a good combo, right? Some combos are weird. I remember when I was working at a summer camp in uh, 2005, we took the students, uh, again, down in the Santa Cruz area, but we were there, and we walked by a Cold Stone, and there was a flavor of ice cream called wasabi ginger, which... I'm no chemist, but that doesn't seem like a good idea. In fact, you don't need to be a chemist to see that that doesn't seem like a good idea. That, that seemed like it was a bad combination. And I'm from uh, in the Bay Area. There's a city south of us called Gilroy, which is the garlic capital of the world, which has garlic ice cream. Again, a combination that I just can't quite wrap my head around. So some things like sweet and salty that are equally sweet and equally salty, some things can be good. They can be a both and. But other things, wasabi ginger and ice cream, garlic and ice cream, even when those are equal mixed, those are either ors. Just choose one or choose the other. Don't mix. When it comes to serving God and serving money, this is not a both and. This is an either or. It's a decision we have to make. That we either truly pursue love and worship money with all of our hearts and just deal with the consequences or we pursue love and worship God with all of our hearts and recognize that no financial security can really give us eternal security. And so, Timothy Keller says, if your identity and your security is in God, then money can't control you through worry and desire. It is one or the other. You either serve God or you become open to slavery to mammon. And notice the verb tense there, that, or the, the verbs there. It's you will either serve God, and, and this idea of being a bondservant, of willingly serving and sacrificing and committing yourself to God, or you're open to all-out slavery and being enslaved to the God of mammon, to, to money and the pursuit of money first and foremost. You know, we see this story... Uh, illustrated rather well uh, through the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. We're not going to dive into Luke 19. I would encourage you to read Luke 19 this week. Luke 19, 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. We're not going to dive into it, but what do we know about Zacchaeus? If you've been in church for, for a while, you know that he was a wee little man. He was short. Uh, you recognize that he was hated because he was a tax collector. And in that time when tax collectors were Jewish people that would be told by Rome, hey, we need a certain amount from your people. And so they would get that amount. But everything the tax collector could gain on top of that was for their own wealth. So it's people who have put money and greed as the first and foremost pursuit of their lives and being able to have that be what they were living for. Now, if you look in the text, Zacchaeus isn't just a tax collector. It talks about how he is the 
chief tax collector, or in the Greek, he is the arch tax collector. So he was the one that was on top of the multi-level marketing pyramid scheme here. He was the one that was on top of being able to, when other tax collectors were making money, they were the ones that were, he was the one that was making money upon the money that they were making. And so he was at the top of the pyramid. And, and you almost wonder how much of that desire to, to kind of go behind his people's back and backstab them or, or betray them for the Romans. I wonder how much of that could have been because he was mocked so much when he was younger. The idea of maybe because he was seen as less than them because of his height, that he wanted to show that he could gain more from them with his wealth. That I wonder how the way that we treat people based on outer appearances or other things like that, I wonder how that impacts them. But this idea that because he was shorter, was really rich, but he had to go up into a tree in order to see Jesus. And so he's mocked, he's hated, he's, he's reviled, he's seen as a betrayer. He turns to money to fulfill him by becoming the chief tax collector, building himself up, gaining wealth. But it only gets worse because money doesn't provide true security. And then he encounters Jesus. And everything changed. He encountered Jesus, and all of a sudden it didn't become about how much money I could achieve or, or raise or get for myself. He encountered Jesus, and when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to have dinner at your house tonight. I'm going to establish a friendship with you in front of everybody else here. You're the one I'm going to have dinner with this evening. Reaching out to those that are mocked and maybe are some of the worst around us, but they still need the love of Jesus. And as we recognize that, he goes and he gets down and he says that, you know, I'm going to give half of what I earn to the poor. And, and what I've stolen from people, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. Even though he was only required by Mosaic Law to give about 50% of the amount. But he goes to 300%. And he said, Jesus looks at him and says, today salvation has entered this house. He doesn't say that it's going to come later when I show up. He says that salvation has come because Zacchaeus recognized that there was only one true God. Zacchaeus recognized that he could not pursue money and then love and worship and pursue him the same way that we love and pursue and worship God. And because he recognized that, one of our points for this morning is the truth that generosity replaces greed when the love of God surpasses our love for money. Generosity replaces greed when our love for God surpasses our love for money. That it no longer becomes how much can I keep for myself for a rainy day. It now becomes who can I help serve because it's a rainy day for everyone at some point. Who's having a rainy day now that I can help out? It's not saying I'll have money in the bank, but it's banking that God will provide enough money for our needs. It's recognizing that generosity replaces greed when our love for God surpasses our love for money. Rick Warren talks about that you're never more like God than when we give. God gives. It's what he does. He is generous. All you have is a gift from God. And you wouldn't take your next breath if God didn't give it to you. We are never more like God. You and I, we are never more like God than when we are generous. So we look at this idea that pursuing God versus money. Pursuing money and God. One causes us to give, the other causes us to hoard. One builds up, the other tears down. One gives us life, one robs us of life when we are indebted to it. Now remember the American dream. We talked about the American dream as this idea that we would start with rags and by the sweat of our brow and the perseverance of our spirit, we would be able to make ourselves something and experience true riches. So we've, it's a rags to riches 
idea. But we also see that serving money leading, leads us to the rags of greed, of poverty, consumerism, and debt. Whereas serving God leads us to the riches of generosity, security, salvation, and hope. We are never more like God than when we are generous. And for our closing point, we talk about that Jesus' poverty provides for our eternal security. We talk about how we pursue money to provide for our future security. But Jesus' poverty provides for our eternal security. Here's what I mean. 2 Corinthians 8-9 says this way from Paul. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We further this point. Timothy Keller says, Jesus, the God-man, had infinite wealth. But if he had held on to it, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. And that was the choice. If he stayed rich, we would die poor. But if he dies poor, we could become rich. Our sins would be forgiven and we would be admitted into the family of God. That for us, by loving money and sacrificing everything to become rich, we will become poor. But by loving us and sacrificing everything to save us, Jesus became poor so that we could become rich and experience true riches. That we live in a rags-to-riches American dream, culture, and society, and viewpoint. But we don't have a rags-to-riches God. We have a God who was from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger so that you and I might experience the riches of heaven with him. That we cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. So for us, as we close, if you are here this morning and, and... you're wrestling with this idea of finding security in God versus security in money. And, and that's a tough thing. Again, I understand it's tough. But one, what's one way, what's one of the, a, a good way for us to show God that we trust him over trusting money? And so for you, what I would encourage, pray about, seek the Lord about is finding a way this week in which to give, ask God, who could you give some money to? Who could you tangibly show God that I'm going to take some money out of my account and I'm going to put it into someone else's account because I know that you have my account in mind? I'm going to save some, take some money that was for a rainy day for me and recognize that it's a rainy day for someone today and I'm going to trust you for the rainy days of my future. What is a way in which we can give this week to someone, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, whatever it may be, what's the way in which we can give this week to show God that we trust in him more than money? And for any of us here in this room, maybe for you, you're listening to this message, and, and again, money is, you're not obsessed with making money. This isn't a big issue for you. I mean, we recognize that Jesus talked about money a lot more than he talked about a lot of things, so we want to talk about that together. But maybe for you, this is not your core struggle. But for you, if you take a step back, you probably can recognize that there is something in your life, because there's something in all of our lives that we seek to find our security and our hope for other than God. And maybe it's not money for you. But anything that we put our validation in, our identity in, and our security in other than Jesus is going to fall apart. Whatever it is. 
that no matter how much we pursue that and we get enough money, or maybe for you it's enough approval of other people, or maybe for you it's enough accolades, it's enough accomplishments. Whenever we get to the point where when we get enough, it is never enough, it's because we're failing to see that only God can provide enough for us. And so as 1 Corinthians 3.11 talks about, there is no other foundation other than that which is laid in Christ Jesus. There is no other foundation upon which we can build our lives. So may we be people, may you, may I, may we be people who build our lives, not upon the shifting sand of the American dream or the shifting sand of what the world tells us, but we build our lives and our houses upon the rock, upon the words of Jesus Christ, and that in so doing, we would have a singular focus, recognize that we're not trying to serve both money and God, that we have a singular focus, a healthy focus, a good focus, in which we recognize that because Jesus was poor and made himself poor from the riches of heaven to the rags of a manger that we too can bring people not buying into the rags to riches idea of the American dream but that we can help people recognize our own righteousness is as filthy rags and that we only find true hope and identity and security and righteousness through Jesus Christ and his blood and his sacrifice for us because if we take a hold of that lives can be changed your life my life, like we look at the story of Zacchaeus, but then how many lives did he change once he experienced the difference between generosity and greed? And what would it look like for us to be those agents of change? Because we realize that we cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning, Lord. And then I know that this is not always, any, always an easy topic. Lord, I recognize that... Um, we live in a world that highlights money and, and other pursuits other than you so often, Lord, that it can get hard. Um, it can get hard to pursue you with a singular focus. But Lord, I pray that if there's any of us that have a, whether it's money or something else, for whatever it is that we may be tempted to put above you, Lord, may we have a singular focus to keep our eyes fixed upon you as the author and perfecter of our faith. May we recognize that our idolatry would want us to think that enough is never truly enough. But true worship of you shows us that you are enough for all that we need, that Christ is enough, and that we won't turn back, that we fix our eyes upon you. So, Lord, we love you. We're grateful. May you just continue to stir in us and challenge us, and may we respond to that challenge by putting you first and foremost in our lives today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.